Hey there, guys. Wanted to tell you about something new. I've launched a Patreon account, patreon.com slash Andrew Brand. People have asked about getting more content, more insight, more information from me, and now that's available through various tiers. If you're able to join on patreon.com, you can get shout outs from me. You can get the Business of Sports podcast transcripts. You can get Ask Andrew questions, weekly newsletters, all kinds of ways to interact with me, including a monthly conversation about whatever you want to talk about, jobs in the sports industry, breaking into sports. It's all available now on patreon.com. Andrew Brandt, if you're able, please join, select your tier and be able to have further content and interaction with me. Patreon.com slash Andrew Brandt. I hope you join. This week on the Business of Sports podcast, I really wanted to dive into what's going on in college athletics. There's so many angles to go through here. And as we record this on Monday afternoon, the 10th, we're not sure exactly what's going to be happening with college sports, with college football, with the Big Ten. Yes, no, we don't know if they're going to play. But there are a couple movements going on. I really wanted to sort of see someone in the movement and talk to them. And one of the movements is we are united. There's also we want to play. I want to sort of hear about it. And in my reading, I saw Andrew Cooper mentioned, a former runner at Cal, a current runner at Cal, former athlete from Washington State University. And then, lo and behold, looked up Andrew. He saw he followed me on Twitter, and I reached out. So from one Andrew to another, welcome to the podcast, Andrew Cooper. Well, thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Phenomenal name, first off. Um, appreciate you for taking the time and energy to find me on Twitter and then for reaching out. Um, and I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, let's start at the beginning. You know, the one thing I saw about you was you're one of the leaders in this Pac-12 movement. But I did see an article that said you don't want to call it leaders. You're really just talking about organization, getting athletes involved. I want to hear sort of how you got involved, what the movement is, and what your goals are. Yeah, so I got involved with the movement July 1st when I got connected with Valentino Deltoso, who's an offensive lineman at Cal, and his roommate Jake Curhan, who is also who I was also good friends with at the time. And they reached out expressing concerns regarding return to campus um, COVID protocols and how that was being handled. And they wanted to put out essentially some demands to improve the health and safety standards. Um, and they wanted to put that out within three or four days, I believe, um, which would have been like around like July 5th or 6th. Um, and then like that day, we just started to see a tidal wave of football players tweeting that they deserved better, essentially. And it was unique to me to see players using their voice in that fashion. Um, because you know, one of the issues in college sports is that players don't feel they have a voice. Um, and so to see football players using their voice, go to Twitter, speak out uh, for what they believe is right, um, we considered expanding the scope of our goals to include um, addressing racial injustice and economic rights and protecting all sports. So those are the goals of the movement for We Are United. Um, and really, the reason why I haven't been associating myself as a leader in this is because this has been football player led and driven from the beginning. I have been providing counsel and guidance throughout. Um, I'm formerly the SAC co-president. SAC is sort of the official voice of athletes in the NCAA. Um, 
And so in that role, I have a formal capacity of serving college athletes and representing them. Um, I was the president of Washington State and the co-president here at Cal Berkeley. Um, so that's that's really how it started was with Jake and Val. And um, unity is everything here. And so putting the players at the forefront is really important to us. And, and also not even any individual leader. There is no individual leader of the movement. Um, that's really what it is. The goal is to start a movement um, and to get players unified behind the simple concept that unity is everything. Now, you were an athlete at Washington State, as you talked about. You're a track and cross-country runner. You graduated there at Washington State 2019 and then transferred to Cal. You continue to run there while you're pursuing a master's degree. Was this something you just mentioned you were involved in at Washington State and now involved at Cal? So this has been sort of a mission for you, and you see progress since your time at Wazoo? Absolutely. So... For me, my personal story, um, my freshman year at Washington State, right at the beginning, my dad had a heart attack and passed away mm -hmm. suddenly. And it really made me grapple with this question of like, why am I investing so much into running? Like, why is this my whole passion and whole focus? Um, and over the course of the next year, I began to discover a purpose within myself that was greater. And a lot of it had to do with helping athletes and advocacy. Um, and when Tyler Holinsky died by suicide on our campus, and I saw how that affected our family and our community, um, I felt a call to action to use my privilege as someone who'd gone through that grief to really stand up and help others. Um, and so as an advocate, I've been trying to help athletes broadly um, in any capacity over the last four years, really. Oh, I think you're muted. Yeah, sorry. One thing I think you said that really struck me, and this is sort of the lexicon out there about student athletes, is that word, student athletes. You want to change that. Tell us about that. So the term student athlete was really invented by Walter Byers, the executive director of the NCAA in the 50s before college sports was as popular and um, widely seen on television as it is today. Um, the term was invented after a football player died on the field. His widow sued the NCAA and for workers' compensation. And really in an effort to just win that court case, they just came up with the term student-athlete. And Walter Byers has written about that in his memoir since then. Um, quote, unquote, he said, we crafted the term student-athlete to avoid paying workers' compensation. And the impact of that decision it's really cemented a pseudo-legal mechanism to divest college athletes of basic economic rights that are afforded to all Americans. Tell me, Andrew, what you guys, the We Are United uh, movement, and you call it a movement, what are you looking to get? What are you looking to accomplish with the movement? So first and foremost, to establish that college athletes have the capacity and the power to unify. So to simply have conversations with each other, to have these conversations with other football players, with other athletes, to hear each other's stories, um, un that's how we achieve unity. Unity is everything. Um, more immediately, a safe working environment. And so, you know, we want to mandate health and safety enforcements that 
are uniform across conferences, essentially. So in the Pac-12, it became really apparent to us that although, you know, Stanford, as an example, they feel quite confident in how their institution is handling their COVID protocols, but other schools weren't doing that. And so it just became obvious that, um, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And so if there's one school that's not doing a good job, it doesn't matter. It's going to, or it's going to have a negative impact on the entire conference. And so when we met with Larry Scott and we essentially wanted answers regarding that, it became, well, Larry Scott made it immediately clear, immediately clear. We cannot mandate anything across 12 schools. Um, and that was very concerning to hear, to say the least. So immediately we want to play, but we want to do so safely. Um, and this is also only the first step in achieving a players association that can adequately represent the best interests of college athletes. Hey, could take us inside, if you will, Andrew, that meeting with, with Larry Scott, the commissioner of the PAC 12. Again, I've been in the business of sports a long time. I know how hard it is to have those meetings, even for executives to have a meeting, let alone students. So tell us how you got the meeting, how it was received, what your sense was on how things were going once you were in that room. So I think it's important to give a little bit of context as to like right. how the meeting transpired. So on Sunday, you know, eight days ago, we released our statement of unity and our demands in the Players' Tribune. And the um, shortly after that, you know, the day that day we sent a letter to the commissioner and all the athletic directors saying we want daily meetings to make progress on these issues at hand so we can work together, make progress on them and create an environment that people feel safe to compete in. They took four days to meet with us. And that, that, that meeting, really that negotiation was Larry Scott, the Utah athletic director, Mark Harlan, and the Arizona state athletic director and Ray Anderson. And, you know, going into the meeting, we just wanted to initially, you know, outline our issues from our perspective and then have an open discussion that was cordial relating to the issues at hand. Um, so we had a few people discuss racial injustice, a few people discuss the economic injustices, a few people discuss the COVID, the lack of COVID protocols that we were witnessing on our campuses. Um, and the tenor shifted quite abruptly when Larry Scott told Nick Ford, who's the Utah football player, um, who wants to be a doctor and is on the path of becoming a doctor. And he told Nick Ford, you're talking out both sides of your mouth when Nick said he feels safe working out in a gym, but doesn't feel safe tackling people in football during this pandemic. And that, you know, essentially resulted in Larry losing his temper a good handful of times throughout. And he even admitted at one point, um, sorry, I got heated. And so really, we never even got past health and safety. Got, like, we couldn't even have a productive discussion about health and safety. Um, and then the media following that from, um, you know, the Pac-12 essentially issued a statement that was this was a productive conversation. This was good. We made steps moving forward. This was a discussion. Um, but that was starkly different from the reality at hand. And so um, we felt the need to collectively write a letter 
um, and send it to him, issue essentially voicing our frustrations with the meeting and, and what we wanted to do moving forward. And we requested daily meetings in that. Um, they denied our request for daily meetings and we asked for a lawyer to be present at future meetings and they denied that request as well. So since that time, has there been communication after they deny further discussion, whether through an attorney or not? So, let's see. No, I don't think so. Um, so they haven't, they haven't done anything since then. In that meeting, and by the way, was that Zoom? Was that a Zoom meeting? Yep, Zoom has become the staple okay. of everything now. Yeah, so cool. after that Zoom, that was Thursday, late Thursday evening. Okay. Late Friday evening, we wrote our letter and sent it to them. Um, and then the letter became public. Um, and then Sunday, you know, the whole world flipped on its head as Trevor Lawrence tweeted a graphic. Right. And are you, you guys, your group in the Pac-12 connected to We Want to Play? And the that group that Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence and others are tweeting out is there a connection there? Oh, absolutely. That's why the graphic was made and created. Okay. So yesterday, yesterday late afternoon, I guess evening on the East Coast. Yesterday evening, um, the leaders of the We Want to Play movement and well, really, I think a group of the most influential college football players in the country and some leaders in our movement came together and had a discussion about our goals and what we wanted to achieve and the issues at hand. And everyone agreed with each other. We didn't have a voice. We didn't have representation. We didn't have uniform health and safety mandates. And we didn't have a players association. And we weren't using our voice and the power of our voice to stand up for what was right. And, you know, I, I received a phone call from, um, Dylan Bowles from Stanford, the, you know, just saying he's like huge development and explained it to me. And then we got our group together and Dallas Hobbs uh, out of Washington state, you know, had, as he likes, as he said, 20 minutes to save the world to make the graphic essentially with the goals and uniting both hashtags. Um, and then we sent it to Trevor um, and it was on Twitter within like five seconds. Tell me again, who designed that? Logo Dallas, Dallas Hobbs. So he he plays football at Washington State, and he was one of the players that was, along with Cassidy Woods, dismissed from the team, essentially, for supporting the movement. And it was he it was the to be clear, he wasn't actually dismissed, but the way the coaches framed it made him believe that he was dismissed initially. And it was only after really receiving public pressure, quite frankly, did. Nick Rolovich and the Washington State Athletic Department backpedal on their statements and say, no, he has the scholarship protected. He's still on the team. Um, and so it, the reaction that Rolovich had is exactly why players were afraid of using their voice to begin with. Um, and so Dallas is an incredible um, individual. He helped him and Cassidy Woods both co-founded the Black Student Athlete Association at Washington State, along with Felice Barton, who is a women's soccer player there um and they're just outstanding college athletes that deserve better from their institution they deserve more support um and so yeah dallas dallas has been instrumental throughout this whole process 
and he made our graphics as well. So he's he's the graphics whiz. Yeah, I mean that's great to to see it from obviously the expansive profile of, of Trevor Lawrence, and I believe the president of the United States retweeted it that this morning as well. It's at a it's at at Hobbs Design. If anyone at wants to follow and support. Andrew, I want to drill down again on what the, and I don't want to call them demands unless that's a word you want to use, but what the requests, what the game plan is for the movement. Is there revenue demand? Is there a health and safety demand other than general increased health and safety around COVID and around concussions and things like that? So first and foremost, given the timing of, the, of sports happening now, um, the number one goal is to unify behind uniform health and safety mandates, not guidelines, but mandates that are actually enforceable with an enforcement mechanism of some sort. So Enforced that's number one. From what, mandates coming from where? The conference? Or yeah, so from, because okay. every conference has been doing um, conference only play essentially. Um, a, each conference has to be able to um, guarantee that and show that there are some sort of uniform mandates that are being followed. Because it's one thing to set a guideline and another thing for the institution to follow that guideline. And so as we discovered immediately in the Pac-12, and as I'm sure is aware now to Trevor Lawrence and you know their, their squad, if your school is doing great, it doesn't really matter if a different school isn't. And so we need everyone to be on the same page about these things. And the only way that that's gonna be able to happen is if an entity is created, like a players association, that can help advocate for the best interests of athletes. Have you guys been in touch with Ramobi Huma and the NCPA that currently exists? Yeah, Ramobi has helped provide um, information uh, and guidance throughout the organizing process and to answer questions that we have about things. And is that a union situation you're looking at or you're talking about organizing something separate from that? So unionization of college sports is unfavorable given the labor laws that exist in America. Yeah, I covered the Northwestern situation. So as you're familiar, you know, the difference between public and private institutions and national versus local labor laws is, is not favorable because you want uniformity in sports. Right. And so really the reason why the NBA and the NFL have antitrust exemptions is because the NFL bargains with the NFLPA and right. the NBA bargains with the NBPA. And, <clears throat> excuse me, there's no negotiation mechanism between players and institutions in college athletics. And there needs to be. It's We're not at the point where we can just ignore these issues anymore. There needs to be an entity that acts in the best interest of athletes. Um, as I said, unionization is not a favorable path, but these schools are capable and these conferences are capable of voluntarily recognizing a players association 
and agreeing to terms with that players association. And, you know, really what we want to bring to the forefront is unity and being unified behind health and safety, um, but also just being unified behind the broad concept that college athletes deserve better. Have you made an economic demand? Did I see something about wanting 50% of revenues from athletics? <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me for that. Um, in our initial, the initial terms that we laid forward were highly comprehensive. And we wanted to make a statement to show what our worth and value is. And so it didn't take long for us to figure out that in professional sports, there's a 50-50 revenue split. And so it's more for it's more something, it's a goal for us to work towards, not to sell ourselves short, not to sell ourselves short with a 5% revenue. Because as you know, you don't want to leave anything on the table as you enter negotiations, correct? Right. And so um, it is more of a starting point. And I think what we've really decided now in the last 24 hours between you know, we are united and we want to play coming together is simply we want a players association um, because the health and safety of these incredible athletes is at jeopardy. And um, there needs to be an entity that can advocate for the best interests of college athletes. Back for more with Andrew in a minute. First, a word from our sponsor. DraftKings has brought their expertise to legal sports betting right here in this country. You can rest assured your funds are secure app is safe, secure, reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. NBA bubble games going on. You can make a pregame money line bet on a single game of at least 25 and you'll receive a $10 free bet to use on a live market within that game. New users get a bonus up to $1,000. So download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app. Use the code ROSS, all caps, R-O-S-S, when you sign up. It's for a limited time. All new users get that sign-up bonus up to $1,000. That's right, DraftKings Sportsbook. Sign-up bonus up to $1,000. Just enter code ROSS when you sign up. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older. New Jersey, Indiana, and Pennsylvania only. Bonus comprised of first deposit bonus and a first bet match. Each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook. For details, gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. We're in a situation right now because of COVID, and we can debate the reasons, but college sports in the fall is, is really uh, in question right now, and that includes college football. Now, it's hard to say universally because, we're, as you talked about, we're going conference by conference. As we sit here today, there's talk about Big Ten canceling football. There's talk they haven't made a decision. We still wait on Pac-12 and other conferences. But if these sports go away, does that change your movement in some way? If college sports go away, the, if the season is canceled, everything that we are advocating for still stands all of these things need to be met still like players deserve a voice i think what we what's happened what happened last night is it ended the chapter of players not having a voice anymore now we're in a new era of college sports 
where players have a voice, they're using it, and they are telling the world that we deserve rights. But with even if Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields tweet these things out, if the college presidents say it's too risky, it's too risky with COVID, has that voice worked? I mean, they, they're still if they still shut down the sport, obviously there's massive ramifications economically. But I guess the question is, what are they? Why do you say that? Why has has that ended one era and started another? Because players have never used their voice like this. Okay. And I don't think that financial incentives should ever be prioritized above the health and safety of students. And it kind of seemed like it was going that direction as these institutions released new schedules uh, and delayed meeting with us and really failed to answer really any of our questions or concerns relating to return to play. And when you're a player trying to decide if you're gonna play sports, you're not compensated. Um, there's no students on campus. You're at a high risk of negative impact from the disease because you have a high body mass index and the predominant workforce in college sports is black. And so, you know, COVID affects black athletes, at, I believe four times rate higher than white or black people, sorry, at a rate four times higher than that of white people. And so, when that's the reality and that's the landscape that you're in and you can't even guarantee that it's going to be the same safety protocols across the conference. I'm only speaking for the PAC 12 at the moment. It's an unfavorable proposition to give athletes, um, especially when their eligibility isn't even protected. There's no, there's still no eligibility protected for any of these guys. So they could, if they could potentially be opting out and of course their scholarship is protected but they could be opting out and just lose this year of eligibility. So to a lot of athletes, they want that extra year and they can't really make a decision until they're given that. And they also can't make a decision because they don't even know what they're opting into. It's not even been, been, it has not been made clear what it even is that we want to opt into. Like, what is this, right? Like what, these are just questions that they haven't answered. And so if the presidents do make that decision, it means it's the right decision. And it's one that they should have made a long time ago because, you know, I think with the Pac-12, they just released their new schedule. It's obvious and apparent that they had every intention of moving forward with the football season um, until players raised their voices in concern of moving forward with the football season. Um, it only highlights why the players and all college athletes deserve an entity that represents their best interests. Let me be clear. Do you think this advocacy is causing leaders, especially of college football, to question whether they have the sport or not? To question whether they play a season? Yeah, I mean, you're saying that the schedules are out, everything seems fine, and then the advocacy groups come up like yourself, and now we're wondering if, if they're going to have football. So do you think your movement has created doubt in the minds of leadership about whether even to have college football. Absolutely. I mean, I'm on the cross country team right now and they have zero answers for us regarding anything. 
my coach doesn't know anything about when we're coming back or anything. You know, they say that there are all, all these guidelines, but they're not explaining to us how they're actually going to enforce and mandate these so that people actually follow them. Um, I think the pressure is on right now. And, you know, these questions have been asked for a long time. It's not like these came out of nowhere, right? You know, they have had ample time, as the Big Ten said, they have had ample time to make these guidelines mandates and to show us why returning to play can be safe. And they haven't been able to answer the question of, is it safe? Um, and if they can't answer the question, that can only lead us to believe that it's not safe. How do you respond to the, the economics question? And I, I guess I know everybody jumps on, you know, these these facilities have water slides and, you know, and Dabo Sweeney makes not 10 million and Nick Staven makes 12 million a year. But there is an economic issue. Uh, I saw the MAC canceled football, the MAC, and one of their big issues is we can't afford the testing. We just can't afford it. We don't have the money for testing. Um, does that resonate with you that when when these schools say we don't have the economics? And the second part of that question is something I know you'll push back against, and I want to hear it, is this idea that non-revenue sports like the one you're in uh, will be negatively impacted with more money put into the sports like football. So to answer the first part of the question, the money has been going up every year. And I know in the Pac-12 specifically, they pulled in 540 million in their most recent fiscal year. And I believe the Big Ten pulled in, like specifically, I believe four years ago, the Big Ten pulled in 530 million. And so in the last um, four years, the Pac-12 has increased their revenue, I believe 150 to 200 million. And so the operating expenses have not increased, I believe beyond that, if you exclude salaries. So the money is getting put somewhere and it's being spent, in my eyes, negligently. Um, you know, as a student studying this and writing my master's thesis on the systemic inequities of college sports, it seems quite obvious to me that the NCAA and its member institutions are overspending to create the impression that they are worthy of their nonprofit status, that they're worthy of not paying taxes. And this question of should these athletes be paid has always been the wrong question in my eyes. Okay. The question should be, should these institutions be held to the same standard as other institutions in America? And when your business lose money, and I think we're on a business show, it's, it's a business, I think you've acknowledged that, when your business loses money, you still pay your workforce, right? Like that's not something we, tolerate in america like if you can't afford to be in business then you shouldn't be in the business of that and so with covid specifically if you can't afford if you can't create a safe work environment then you shouldn't be putting these athletes in a position like larry scott told us in the meeting if you don't feel safe well then opt out and go home well it should the burden shouldn't be on the players to make that decision you know regarding their health and safety like if you're going to be creating an environment that's going to be profiting off of the labor of these athletes, that environment should be safe for them to work. And it's why a lot of people are still working from home because the liability is too great for these employers in this specific moment. Now, 
whether we should be returning to play or not during this pandemic, I think that the government should do their job and make that decision for their, given their local ordinances of where they're at, um, because it's different everywhere. Um, regarding the second question, does this harm non-revenue sports? I run cross country and track. And there's this, there's this myth that name image likeness would only benefit a small handful of athletes on campus. But I can say with full certainty that I, as a subpar cross country runner, could start a camp in my hometown in Seattle and make a couple thousand dollars off that during the summers. And I'm currently not allowed to because of the rules in place. Dallas Hobbs can't make money off of his design company because of the name of his likeness rules in place. And so because amateurism has just like shut the gate on business opportunities for athletes, I think we're really not even aware of how many athletes would benefit from these economic rights. Like I, I deeply believe that economic rights and protections for football players is economic rights and protections for all athletes. And the more unified we are, the likelier we are to protect all sports because it shouldn't be the athletes who are punished for the negligent spending of these institutions. Um, so to me, women specifically would benefit tremendously from name image likeness rights and revenue sharing um, because these women's sports are much more incredible than we realize. I went to the, uh, I wish I was wearing the shirt right now, but I went to the um, NCAA Women's Final Four Soccer Championship this year. And it was a phenomenal environment. It was incredible. Um, stadium was packed, Avaya Stadium in San Jose and MLS Stadium was packed. Um, there were, you know, dozens of food truck vendors. I mean, if you've actually attended any of these women's events, you know, they are popular. They're, you know, women's, women's softball in the NCAA makes more money across the board than baseball. Like there is money that is not being granted to women surely because they don't have access to these economic rights. And unfortunately in America, you know, college is the highest level of sport that a lot is yeah. available to these women. And so to me, it's a, we're doing the women a great disservice by not giving them access to the same economic rights as everyone else. And all, all athletes deserve it, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, this idea of cutting non-revenue sports, and I think the ones at most, most risk are men's non-revenue sports because of what you said about women's sports and because of Title IX. I mean, as you and I joked before, I'm a Stanford guy, you're a Cal guy, here we are on the same screen, that's okay. <laughs> uh, I lived with Aaron Rodgers for 10 years, so I, I get it. Um, well, that was a tumultuous living situation. <laughs> yeah. Um, but speaking of Stanford, they just cut 11 sports. And, you know, 11 sports. Now, we got mailings from Stanford about, yeah, we had 36. That's the most in the NCAA Division One. We had to get down. But this is not unique. All over the country, it seems like men's baseball, men's wrestling, squash, rowing, crew, they're all at risk right now. I don't know if it's related to COVID. I don't know if it's related to escalating costs with football and basketball. But this is something where I just wonder, 
if a movement like yours requires more economic input into whatever, that these other sports could be at risk, just raising the question. Well, I think it's, you know, a reallocation of funding, first off. Um, you know, Stanford, as an example, Stanford's got a $27 billion endowment. Yeah. You know, for them to just say, we don't have the money, I think is ludicrous. Because these athletic departments, we, we often like to isolate them and put them in, you know, not beneath the purview of universities. But the reality is they're part of the university. It's a department of the university. And so the university has the funds to afford these sports. Um, the endow I mean, the easiest place to look is the endowments. But the way that money is spent on salaries can be reconsidered. Um, the way that funds are distributed by the conference can be redistributed. And so I only hope that we begin an open discussion between athletes and these institutions to figure out how can we do this in a financially feasible manner that protects all sports because all options need to be on the table. You know, for Stanford to say we don't have the money when they have the one of the largest endowments in the country, to me, I'm curious, how does that, how does that make you feel as an alumni? Yeah, it was upsetting. And as I said, we kind of demanded answers, at least some of us in terms of inquiry to the provost. And that was the gist. You know, that was one of the, I'll keep the rest of it confidential, but he kept talking about we were number one in division one in terms of number of sports, 37 or 36. And now we're down to 25, which is still up in the higher level of NCAA division one athletics. So you're right. You know, as an alum, it's frustrating to see uh, some of those sports get cut. And it's frustrating as an, someone in the business of sports to see these programs cut around the country. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, listen, I understand it's big business. That's my expertise. I just uh, want to understand economics of college sports better. I'm at Villanova now where I run a sports law, sports business program. And, you know, I'm aware that we have 25 sports and only one men's basketball makes money. Uh, and it has to carry some of the expenses for some of the other sports. But, you know, we have a football program that doesn't make any money. And it costs a lot of money, but we think football is important. I do. Um, anyway, I digress. I want to wrap I mean, it. Like, there's also, sorry to add on to this point because it's important. We also have Division Two and Division Three sports. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, like, this idea that you need to make money to have sports, I think, you know, universities have decided sports are important on our campuses, so we should invest in them. Now, what this is doing, though, is it's opening up the can of worms, so to speak, on like, how are universities spending their money? Yeah. Because, you know, it doesn't just stop at sports. It goes to how are faculty members getting paid? How, who has decision-making power over what athletic departments do? And, you know, my experience at Washington State and Cal Berkeley is sort of that the, the athletic department exists wholly outside of anything to do with the university and financially that's just not the reality of how a university operates and so universities exist to serve their students and they often choose to spend money and lose it so that these players have the opportunity to play but there's also 
you know, tuition being brought in by a lot of these non-revenue sports. So if you have someone, me as an example, I'm a walk-on, so I, I have a loan, you know, I pay tuition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the school is making money off me. Like a lot of athletes pay money to go to school. And when we ignore that element of the conversation, it gets us into much muddier waters. But I think quite frankly, the money is there. Yeah, I mean, I read an article early on in all this about schools would be better off adding sports to make money than than dropping sports because they get a lot of people like you that are pay students. Uh, but I suppose they think we can get pay students, especially a place like Stanford, we can get full pay students and not not have the expense of these sports, you know, because everyone wants to come here. So that's a conversation for another day. But Andrew, I want to let you go. I want to sort of, again... Where are we now with Commissioner Larry Scott and your group, with Pac-12 and your group? I know uh, we left it. He was not the most thrilled about the meeting and apologized for some of his anger. Um, but as we sit here today now, a few days after the meeting on August 10th, and the whole world is kind of questionable whether we're even going to have college football at Big Ten, other places. Where are we now? We are waiting for... Larry Scott's response. We are waiting for the Pac-12 to show leadership, the Conference of Champions, which, you know, in our letter we say this is, um, this conference has a proud history, but this is not a proud moment. Um, I fully agree with that. This conference has some of the most incredible athletes that I've, and people that I've ever met, will ever meet in my life. Um, but every single day that we don't address these issues, we are putting our communities at greater risk of this disease and this pandemic and we need to work together and put our differences aside to make progress on these things and we want to meet with them daily and they just you know don't want to do that i suppose so we have no answers from larry scott and the commission and the conference um and you know we're we are still seeing the ramifications of the bomb that trevor lawrence dropped on his twitter yesterday and you know, this is a day, I didn't know any of this was going to happen yesterday. Um, so I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> I think we're all, we're all trying to figure that out. What if, and last question, what if Larry Scott stonewalled you and just said, you know, thanks, I'm glad we met. Here's what we're doing. We're going ahead with football. And no real guidelines for opt-outs. What happened? Well, I mean, if they just go ahead with football, like we've been pretty clear that we have over 450 players that feel this type of way. And that's only the numbers, you know, that doesn't even show the implicit support. So if they go, if they say we're going to have football, you know, that's, um, I think that's a can of worms that the Pac-12 doesn't want to open. But um, I think it would be wholly negligent if they did that. It would be way too unsafe. And I think that these schools would be held liable for the damages if they did. Do you guys have legal representation? Well, we asked Larry Scott if we could have lawyers present at future meetings, and he said no. So we're waiting <laughs> on that answer also. Okay. Andrew, we'll keep in touch on this, and uh, we'll Please. see where it goes. This was a pleasure. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, – this is really interesting to me. It's a, it's a player empowerment position. You guys have done something bold and, and I don't think it's overstating it to say historic. So I was glad to get you on to talk about it.
and that's truly a compliment coming from you and you know all of your expertise and background in this space so i'm thankful for you and the work that you do and i appreciate you for having me on thanks andrew good luck to you we'll stay in touch thank you hope you have a great day bye hope you enjoy that we'll see what comes out of it we'll see what comes out of college football but i thought it interesting to sort of listen in on what happened in a meeting between these students using their own sense of empowerment to try to meet and instill change. And now they've got Trevor Lawrence tweeting about it. They're trying to use it at the highest levels. And maybe we're on to something here. This could be historic, as I said on the podcast. And that'll do it for this week's edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brand, a college sports edition, college football, player empowerment, and beyond. We are united. We want to play. Let's follow it. Appreciate all these that follow me on Twitter, at Andrew Brandt. Appreciate my producer extraordinaire, Brian Neal, musical producer, Sam Brandt. Thanks for any Apple podcast rankings and comments. And we'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.